Welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and this week we are joined by Eric Tarzinski, founder of Contrary, backed by the founders of Tesla, Reddit, Facebook, and Airbnb. The Firmax is a full-stack platform to identify and support entrepreneurs, often well before they are even starting a company. During our conversation, Eric and I covered their thesis on talent, how he was able to raise the first fund without the normal background LPs often look for, and how they use culture to attract top talent. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation with Eric. Eric, thanks for joining us. Samir, thanks for having me. It's great to see you. It's it's been a while, and I'm excited to do this because you know how much you've actually built over a very short amount of time. It seems like I remember when you were first la- launching Contrary just a few years ago, and I know the first fundraise coming in as a non-spin out, non-operator, not a long angel track record to now, you know where you are is actually pretty exciting to have followed. Before we get into all of Contrary and, and some of the experiences so far, walk us through how you got into tech and then ultimately VC. So definitely my, yeah, the journey is a bit unorthodox, right? So, uh, so, so kind of, you know, quick background was, you know, kind of grew up uh, in, in New Jersey, kind of like pretty rural town uh, and kind of the northwestern most part of the state. And then, uh, you know, spent my whole life there. You know, dad worked and works for a roofing manufacturing company. So he spent 40 years of his life there, still there. And it's so kind of that kind of uh, upbringing. And, and so, you know, kind of grew up there, school in Boston. Uh, and that was actually really where I kind of found my interest in in, in tech and startups more broadly. So, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting that there was a... a a whole group of us, probably 15 or so, from a bunch of various schools, right? So from Northeastern and Harvard and MIT and BC and BU, right? We all kind of found one another because we were all entrepreneurial. Uh, and and these are these are people like Dalian, for example, right? And and you know like uh, Nasir Yassin and Peter Boyce, whatever, right? And then we were all in Boston together at the exact same time, right? And so we became friends and and, and spent time together. Uh, you know, it, it was pretty interesting because I think at that time, you know, everybody kind of knew that or, or thought they knew that these people were really talented, were going to go on and do great things, right? Um, and so we kind of started working on different projects together. And, and and so, you know, I started a payments company as a result of that. Didn't go that well, but it's kind of my first dip into, into building something. And I think that was the most important lesson for the first one, right? Which was, hey, I now knew what I wanted to do for the rest of my life, right? Which is build businesses. And so, you know, a few years after that, moved out to SF, was an early employee at a startup that got bought by Lyft and then took about a year off. And, and 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 really kind of knew that I wanted to spend the next decade plus of my life building something really special, really, really enduring. And I wasn't sure if it was a startup, it was a fund, you know, whatever. But I'd, I'd had the idea for what became contrary while I was, you know, still in, in school, right? This idea of was finding myself around so many super talented people that I thought were going to go on and do great things. But that success most of which has happened over the past decade was, was really just like this, this kind of random walk of life that happened, right? There was no entity or organization or firm, whatever that, that was focused on kind of how can we systematically kind of identify exceptionally talented people and then build this infrastructure that supports them for their entire professional careers, right? Um, and so I kind of kept coming back to this idea um, and, and kind of thought that there was an opportunity to build, you know, one of the, the kind of most special firms of our generation focused on just that. And so basically just springboarded off of it and the rest is history. I remember when you were starting Contrary, it was a time where we started to see real volume in terms of new firms coming to market. 
And you had this unique thesis from day one around the identification of talent early, but at the same time coming in, even though you had this compelling value proposition, you didn't check off the normal boxes institutional LPs look at typically when investing in a fund one, meaning you didn't come from a large shop and then spin out. You didn't have like a decade long angel track record, nor did you have a long history as an operator. And so curious in terms of how that first fundraise went and what were the things that you did to become successful at raising the fund, despite maybe not having some of the traditional things that LPs look for? Yeah. I mean, you nailed it, right? There's, there's basically like three, three different ways to do it, right? It's like you, you work, you work at a fund, you have a killer angel track record, or you have, you know, a billionaire parent, right? Like those are, those are typically like, you know, the three historical ways of getting off the ground. I had none of them, right? You know, and, and so I think that the answer there in the solve is, 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 you know, is ultimately like you have to find your wedge, right? You have to find whatever your angle might be where you can, pitch to people using some degree of emotion rather than logic, right? Um, and I think that's how all, uh, you know, kind of first-time funds for people kind of who were in my I, my shoes really get raised, right? Is, you know, maybe today, like fast four or five, six years, right? Maybe if you come from like, you know, an underrepresented background, right? And, uh, you know, you, you, you yourself might not have a deep track record, right? But you know that there are people out there that are excited to back, you know, diverse and underrepresented managers, right? And so that's your wedge, right? That's your emotional bent, right? I think for me, right, like, Obviously, I'm a, I'm a white guy, right? And and so I think that obviously is is, is, not, is not kind of a, a selling point per se. But but I, I took attack of, look, you know, I'm I'm young, um, I'm you know not too far out of school, right? I'm relatable, right? I'm relatable to to other bright young people out there, right? Um, and 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 so I can basically become friends with them, and I can kind of like muscle my way or hustle my way into you know meeting with really sharp other you know kind of talented people. And so when it came to pitching LP, then I had to find people who themselves experienced success early, right? And so these ended up being people like, you know, the Nate Blacharzics at Airbnb or, you know, the Steve Huffmans of uh, at Reddit or, you know, other people who had had experienced huge success at a young age. And so they, they took, a, a, took a look at me or took a meeting with me and, you know, they said, hey, like, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here. Right? I, I remember Emmett Shear telling me very distinctly, he said, look, you know, I think this is a really interesting idea. I think that if it works, it could be really, really successful, but I'm viewing it as a seed bet, right? I'm viewing my LP commitment as a seed bet. I expect it to go to zero and, and if it works, fantastic. And so it was, that was the kind of mentality I think that I had to find. And then it was just a volume game from there, right? It was, it was, it was hundreds and ultimately had 1300 meetings over the span of, you know, two years to raise a couple million dollars. Right. But like, that's what was needed at that time, right? And granted, 2016 is a different era than 2021 or 2022, but like, that's what you had to do. If you look back then, in fact, I'd, you draw the analogy in, in many cases, like if you're backing a pre-seed company, you're really betting on the individual. You have to generally like the idea and the direction and the thesis, but at the end of the day, you're really betting on, in this case, you as an, as an LP. And there's this kind of notion of like product market fit of, you know, your product market fit with those LPs, your product market fit in terms of your founders and the thesis, which we'll get into in a second. But 
just a couple years later, roughly, you raised Fund 2, which was $75 million, And I remember reading that it was raised in five months. And I'm curious, what happened within those two years that allowed you to be so successful in Fund 2? Were there certain things that you learned from the Fund 1 process? And what were some of those tangible metrics that somebody said, okay, it's no longer just a founder bet, but you're doing something that actually represents meaningful differentiation that matters from a performance standpoint. You know, I, I think uh, I think one of the things that had that in the early days hindered contrary, but now has helped contrary is is the model. It's a unique model, right? Whatever way you want to slice it, right? Like it is it is a unique model, right? I don't really know of many other firms in the entire world that are kind of taking you know kind of our our kind of tack when it comes to to to, to venture. Um, and so I think what that meant is that in the early days, it made it that much harder, right? Because here you were for all the reasons we just talked about, right? Like, you know, you know, limited track record, hadn't worked at a top fund, you know, all of those kinds of things, right? Like that existed. And then you layer on top the fact that the model itself is also pretty unconventional, right? You know, we're not yet another seed fund in Boston or New York or whatever, chasing the same seed deals as everybody else is, right? We're, 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 we're saying, look, like, you know, we're going to build this infrastructure that's focused on identifying exceptionally talented people very early in their journeys and then supporting them for the entirety of their professional careers, right? It, it, it just added another layer of complexity that, you know, at the time certainly didn't do us any favors, right? But one or two or three years in, all of a sudden, the pendulum started to swing back very aggressively in our favor, right? Because you end up being this N of one or N of two kind of venture firm with now a track record of, of success, or right? you have some early breakouts that have gone on to raise on you know, half a billion, billion dollar plus valuations of which we were the first check, right? You've built a pretty strong brand within your niche and you have a model that nobody else is doing, right? And, and that, that is actually really difficult to replicate, right? You know, it's, it's relatively easy to kind of have two people and a dog, you know, kind of early stage venture fund, right? But if you're talking about building this, you know, kind of talent identification machine, um, there are very few firms in the world, I think, that can do that. And so that becomes appealing to LPs, whereas two years prior it was, <laughs> hey, I don't know if this is going to work, right? How long was it be between Fund 1 and Fund 2 exactly from the from the day you sort of closed Fund 1 to when you kind of did the first close for Fund 2? Yeah, about two years. When you were raising from those you know, Fund 2 LPs, how did they look at the different components? Because there's some track record, but the track record's early. Some of those companies are still one or two years from, you know, their starting point. And then you have some track record related to the execution of your model itself. How do you think they were weighing those different things? And what, what did you ultimately learn from that process of what, what people care about just maybe two years into a firm? I'll tell you one of the, the biggest mistakes that I think that I made early on was actually not going logo hunting enough. And this might be controversial uh, and, and we can we can we can riff on this, but you know, my my view on fund 1 and fund 2 in, in the early days of contrary was we're, we're we're trying to build one of the best venture firms of our generation and I'm going to do this the right way. And to me the right way always meant I'm going to come up with a differentiated model. I'm going to run a high conviction concentrated book that has the potential to generate, you know, durable outsized returns, which means 
leading our rounds, negotiating, you know, valuation, all this kind of stuff. And so even on our first fund, that's what we were doing, right? We were we were buying, you know, a, a few percentage points, two to five percent for a hundred K check, right? Again, it was a different era, but uh, you know, that's kind of what we were doing, right? Uh, and that continued on on, on on fund two. But what ended up happening is you got to a point where I would literally have certain LPs ask me, hey, have you invested in any companies that I've heard of before? That happened to me a few times, right? And, and I was like, this is this is this is ridiculous, right? You know, because I think we're backing exceptional founders who have gone on to raise subsequent rounds from tier one firms, right? And and that that is probably the the, the best indicator of, of early success is if you own a large percentage of a company that gets backed by you know tier one firms at the next round, right? But a lot of people didn't view it that way, right? A lot of people viewed it as kind of like, hey, like what hot companies have you backed, right? And I think that hurt us. That's perhaps like a a lesson learned. But I think in terms of what we did well, um, number one, it was kind of building a lot of relationships with LPs early on. Um, and then I think number two, it was it was earning the trust and respect and credibility, I think, of other venture investors of the community who could vouch for you, because I think vouching is one of the most important mechanisms in terms of like enabling your success as a venture you know, fund manager, whether right or wrong. And then, you know, kind of finally, uh, like a little bit of meat on the bone, right? Whether it was brand or track record or things like that. Um, but that first part, I think, was, was, was a big mistake that I made in retrospect. And I don't agree with it, but it's the reality. Yeah, it's a little bit of a paradox for sure in terms of balancing between investing in things that you might be able to get higher ownership, a little bit contrarian versus investing in things that are obvious with repeat founders, things that you know, from fund one to fund two will show, you know, LPs that, you know, you're in companies that they ultimately recognize. But how did you get comfortable with not doing that when so many fund managers have gravitated toward investing in logos? Yeah. So, I mean, this, yeah, they certainly were mainstream. I mean, it's funny. I, I joke even today, I don't think that there's ever been a single deal that we've done at the early stage that another VC has sent our way. And that's rare, right? Uh, there's a lot, I mean, you know, at the early stage, right? It's a lot about trading flow and, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? But like our view was always, look, like it's a differentiated model. We, we, we have our own unique kind of thesis view model of the world. So it should be incumbent upon us to discover that talent first, right? If we're doing our jobs the right way, we're finding these people first. We're finding them before the rest of the world recognizes how special they are in many ways, right? And so, you know, I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to bet that I can do that better than anybody else, right? I, at that point, I had I had already spent, you know, three or four years, like, I think relatively plugged into to, to kind of what I'd call this niche of like writer, you know, kind of earlier career founders, right? And so I thought I had a good sense of, of who was really exceptional versus kind of who was not, even if they were unproven founders, let's say, right? Um, and so I think ultimately, it was whether right or wrong, like probably confidence in myself, right? Married with this view that we just talked about a couple minutes ago, right? Which was, if I was going to do this the right way, right? If we were going to build a world-class returns focused, top, you know, decile style venture firm, we couldn't go logo hunting, right? Buying a 10th of a percent of a company on a 20 or 25 mil post money that Excel is leading, right? Or buying three to 5% of a company at 10 where we're the first check, right? Like that's the difference between having a two, five, three X fund or a 10 X fund, right? And I want a 10 X fund. Um, 
But, you know, there are challenges that come with it, right? And I actually think now that it probably made that second fundraise even somewhat harder. So tell us a little bit about the thesis, because we did talk at the, or at least alluded to it at the very beginning of this conversation around the talent networks and why they're, those are so important. Maybe you can describe exactly what the thesis is and really the actualization of executing on that thesis. I, I think our view at the very core is that venture as an industry has been slowly but surely moving earlier and earlier and earlier for much of the past 60 years, right? I mean, you think about kind of the couple of different waves of venture, right? Kind of version 1.0 of this is maybe what a Sequoia has been doing for 60 years, right? Which is kind of you know, finding companies that largely already exist or doing pretty well, giving them a little bit of extra capital. Um, you know, I think kind of version 2.0 of this perhaps is, you know, what a YC pioneered 20 years ago where kind of they went a little bit earlier and they said, hey, you know, if you're sharp and you have an interesting idea for a company, We'll give you a couple hundred thousand dollars and see what happens, right? But but nothing existed for kind of this this next chapter that we started thinking about, which was, well, what if you could actually use technology to kind of go one notch earlier than that, right? And kind of build one of the best venture firms of our generation focused on, okay, how do we identify the brightest people in the world first, right? First meaning oftentimes before they even start their first company. And then how do you build infrastructure that allows us to, to kind of relentlessly support these people for their entire professional careers, right? So, so think about it as, you know, you're getting ready to graduate and, you know, we help you find your very first job at a hypergrowth startup. You know, you're three, four years out of school and, you know, you're thinking about kind of riffing on a project, we connect you to a potential co-founder. You know, you're five, seven years out of school and you're raising your seed round and we're your first check, right? All the way through, you know, your 15, 20, 25 years out, uh, maybe you've exited your first company. Now you're an LP with Contrary. You're co-investing alongside us. Uh, you know, you're, you're mentoring the next generation of, of, of people in the Contrary community, right? And so you're truly building this institutional lifelong affinity. And I think that is special. That is something that's not really being done today in the venture world. And, and you know, I think maybe with the sole exception of YC, there's no real institutional loyalty in the venture world, right? You know, you think about, you know, pick a venture fund, right? You know, oftentimes that founder might say, oh, you know, yeah, I, I really love Mike, right? Or I really love Samir, whomever, right? But but, the, but but they don't really care that much about the venture firm, right? Um, whereas with Contrary, if you talk to the average person who's a part of Contrary, they love Contrary, right? And so I think that is something that's truly, truly special about what we're building is it's not about Eric. It's not about anybody else on our team. It's about building like an enduring lifelong kind of organization, um, you know, that people can be a part of for their entire professional careers in tech. Can you unpack that more specifically? Because you're right. I mean, most founders or people that are backed by an investment firm, it's usually the individual that they build a relationship with and have the affinity for. But what does this mean in practice in terms of why, why is there such a high NPS for contrary? You know, I, I think kind of the, the, the way the model works ultimately, right, is, you know, we're, we're, we're doing a lot of different things at the earliest junctures, right, whether it's with a software platform or scouts or, you know, the existing community and referrals, right, finding really great talent early on, right? And then in a given year, you know, we might add anywhere from 30 to 50 people, let's say, to you know, what we call our fellowship community, which is kind of our core community of, 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 of folks, you know, that are part of, of Contrary. And, and kind of once you basically kind of become a part of, of the ecosystem, 
you know, we commit to supporting you for the long haul, right? Uh, we commit to supporting you with basically all the things that I mentioned, right? You know, helping you find jobs, you know, giving you small grants, you know, connecting you to co-founders, writing your first check, right? Like we're supporting you throughout every step of, of, of that journey. And so when you kind of take a step back and think about it from the, the individual's point of view, who is a part of, of Contrary, it becomes more than a venture firm, right? It becomes almost like your tribe, right? I mean, we, we have people who are part of Contrary that, you know, they're living together, they're going rock climbing together, they're attending one another's weddings, like, you know, they're talking about like the latest, you know, like uh, CS advances, right? It's like, it is a true community in every sense of the word. And I think that, that is what makes it so enduring, right? I think you can help people at certain inflection points in their lives. And if you do that well, you gain, you gain lifelong affinity, right? Um, and, 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 and I think so that, that's kind of like really where we're focusing is like we want to help people at, at kind of life's most important moments. And then inevitably, these are people that are going to either start a company or join a great company and contrary is there. I'd love to maybe dig into each of those. You mentioned software platform. You mentioned the scout program. But preceding all of that, you have to identify talent. You have to find these people who haven't even started companies. How does that work in practice? And are there certain signals that you really are looking for these individuals as potential contrary founders? Yeah, for sure. So um, so there's a, a potpourri of different ways that we're doing it, right? And like I... I, I, I joke that it's, it's, it's certainly, you know, an art as, as much as it is the science, right? But our view is that, you know, we, we build contrary to the point where, um, you know, Sequoia talks about, right, how, how kind of they view the, the cardinal sin as not seeing every company, right? You know, they expect to be fallible, right? They expect to necessarily not pick the right company every single time, right? But, but if they're not even seeing that company to begin with, you know, there's something wrong, right? Whether it's their brand or, you know, selection process or whatever. And our view is the exact same, but for people, right? We want to be seeing everybody basically before they're starting their first company. And, you know, uh, if, if we don't, right, uh, we're doing something wrong. And so that's kind of why we, why we kind of, you know, have all of those different pillars, right? Scout, software, et cetera, and, and can kind of dig into each of them if you'd like. But I, but I think to answer your second question around how do you kind of, Think about and evaluate that individual. You know, there's no concrete uh, like these are the four steps, right? But but I think ultimately it, it, it's a few things. I think number one, you're looking at somebody's body of work, right? Uh, you're looking at hey, what have you done in the past that shows some tendency, inclination, like proclivity for um, like being a builder in the future, right? Um, and so whether those are like side projects, things they've hacked on, you know, companies they've worked at that have particularly entrepreneurial cultures, whatever it might be, like that's that's part one. I think part two is is essentially like a like a character test, right? So so it's actually vouching, right? So it's talking with uh, you know peers or or former colleagues or managers, whatever, and getting a sense for who is that person as an individual, right? Are they well respected? Do they have strong work ethic? You know, all those kinds of things. And I think the last part is, is simply just, you know, the old fashioned way of having a discussion with them. I think one of the things we've learned over the past, you know, three, four, five years is that if you kind of build that funnel the right way and can identify someone who appears super talented, right? If you simply talk to them and ask them, hey, you know, what do you expect to do over the next couple of years, right? They'll tell you, they'll be very direct with you. And they'll say, look, you know, I'm at company X right now. I'm at company X because I want to, 
do these three things, right? I want to, you know, work very closely with the founder. I want to learn what it takes to, to raise capital. I want to learn what it takes to become a good manager. And then in two years, I expect to leave and start a company. Right. And so those are the kinds of people where, you know, if all of those three boxes check out, we're like, fantastic. Right. Like, welcome to contrary. Right. Whereas if you're the best software engineer in the world and you want to stay at Google for the next decade, it's just not a fit. So high level, that's kind of how we think about it. It's very clear. Everything is incredibly process driven at your shop. And as you think about adding value or identifying these founders, tell us a little bit about how the software fits in in enabling those things. Yeah, for sure. So, so I think from an, from an identification point of view, I think what's special about Contrary in many ways is that you know there there are firms out there that also have software engineering teams, right? I, our, our view is actually that this becomes table stakes over the next decade in venture, right? If you think about kind of hey, what does venture look like a decade from now, right? I think for us, we think that there are three things at the core. I think venture firms will have technology. I think they'll have talent and community, and I think they'll have distribution, right? And so our view is that while only a handful of venture firms have, you know, engine data science teams today, this will become just table stakes in, in, in 10 years. That's number one. Um, in terms of kind of what it means for us very tactically, we're using it to do two things. Um, we're using it to, number one, help us kind of track, flag, identify great talent specifically and not companies, whereas most of the venture firms out there in the world today that do have engineering teams uh, focus explicitly on company identification, right? And so I think that's kind of an element where Contrary is, is quite unique. But then beyond that, uh, we have our own internal tooling, software infrastructure, et cetera. And, and that is focused on that second piece, right? Of, hey, once we've identified you, we've selected you, and you're a part of the Contrary community, hey, now we have this entire ecosystem, basically, uh, you know, of, of internal tools that allow you to, you know, meet other like-minded people, find a potential co-founder, sign up for office hours, you know, all of these things that basically serve as like a connective tissue to allow people to meet one another, befriend one another, reach out to one another, uh, and like strengthen the ties of the community. So it goes both ways. One thing that's really revealed itself in the market is just how firms of all sizes are becoming platforms, whether it's using software or resources in as much as getting people that are helping the founders in different sort of capacities. And on the software side, we have seen people build, you know, really impressive in-house technologies to help founders, to help with deal flow, to source, to, to filter. And, you know, folks like 776, Space 10, Goodwater, SignalFire, all have done a great job. Now, all of those firms have significant AUM. They have the management fees to pay for it. But as an emerging manager, how do you actually execute when you might be on a fund one and fund two, less than 100 million, not very much in management fees to go around? How do you actually create those platforms in a way that, you know, really is compelling and has the necessary resources. Yeah, it's culture. Uh, it, it, like that's that's the answer. Is you know, it's funny. I, I actually had a friend. Uh, this is maybe only a month ago. Uh, who said, "Hey, you know, we we have we have twenty people at Contra, right? We, you know, we're managing a couple hundred million. Uh, we have twenty people on the team." I said, "Hey, how do you?" How do you have 20 people on the team? And, and my answer was, well, if you're not paying yourself a million dollars a year in salary, uh, it's pretty easy. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, 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 and I'm dead serious. You know, look, like I didn't I didn't pay myself a dollar uh, for the first five and a half years of Contrary's journey. Uh, 
Um, you know, I, I didn't start paying myself until January. You know, I think when you build that kind of culture and ethos into the firm, where it's a startup mindset, where, you know, we're building something really special, you know, you kind of feel like you're rowing in the same direction together. And that allows you to hire people who are similarly bought into that mission, right? You know, you're not joining a venture firm because of the cash, which is, I think, frankly, cash and prestige are largely why people tend to join venture firms, right? Um, you're buying it, you're buying into it and you're, you're, you're joining Contrary because we're building something really special, right? And sure, obviously, we're going to compensate you, you know, uh, very well as well. And, and you'll get upside and everybody at Contrary gets carry and all that kind of stuff, right? But it, 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 it's pretty easy, I think, when, when you're not paying yourself half a million or a million dollars a year. There's been several times during this conversation I've forgotten that I'm talking to a VC versus a startup founder, but there are so many corollaries in building a firm versus building a company. And in your case, you are building things around culture and team and infrastructure and constantly figuring out ways to, to have an edge against you know, some of the competition out there. But as you look across the entire firm building exercise, how do you balance your time and where are you spending most of your time? on the uh, non-investing activities. I think Alexis Ahanian and I kind of feel similarly in the regard of like we view we view our firms as startups that just happen to deploy capital, right? Um, and that's always how I viewed contrary. I think that's how Alexis views 776. And I think that mindset affects everything that we do, right? And so when it comes to where I spend time, I view contrary and my role as being that of a CEO, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think part of it is, is building a world-class team of people around me where you can get leverage off of that, right? And so, you know, in a given week or month or year, you know, I'm spending my time on everything from, you know, recruiting to fundraising to, you know, supporting our existing founders to helping close deals, right? Um, you know, I'm doing a little bit less kind of like pound the pavement, you know, volume based founder meetings, let's say than I was five or six years ago, right? But guess what, we have a team that 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 does that, right? Or, you know, I, I used to spend time doing all the back office things with Carta and fund admin and whatever. And guess what, you know, now we have a CFO, right, who, who who's been world class and fantastic and super helpful, and is, you know, taking a lot of that kind of off of my plate, right. And so I think it's this combination of, I'm constantly asking myself, where can I get leverage on my time, right? Where am I like just literally looking at my calendar, right? And, and figuring out, okay, like how much of my time am I spending on X, Y, Z things? And then if there are things that I'm spending a meaningful amount of time on that somebody else could or should be doing, right? We hire for that. But if there are important things like recruiting, fundraising, supporting our founders, winning deals, you know, things like that, where where really it's paramount for me to, to be deeply involved, you know, that's kind of where I look to spend a lot of my time. So that, that's how we think about it. But yeah, it truly is like just this constant exercise of, of time allocations. If you look back, I guess, in the, half, in the last half decade, are there things that you think you underestimated in terms of the amount of lift they would take to be successful? There are many. Yeah, I think uh, um, I think number one is simply just how much time these things take. Uh, you know, I I I vividly remember meeting another friend in venture when we were first getting country off the ground. He said, "Look, you know, you, you have to want to do this 
for at least a decade. And, 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 and I remember thinking to myself at the time, like, yeah, you know, I'll probably spend the next like two to three years uh, kind of, you know, jamming on this. If it works, if it looks like it's working great, I'll keep keep, keep going with it. If it's not, you know, whatever, I'll go, go do my next thing. Right. But now, you know, we're almost five years into writing our first check, you know, November will be five years. Um, and, you know, I haven't gotten a, a, a carry check yet. Right. I mean, we've returned a little bit of capital, but like, you know, again, I, I haven't gotten a carry check and, you know, uh, I didn't pay myself until January. Right. And, and, and it's, it's, it's very real five years in, right. And it's very, very, you know, prescient and salient advice, which is look, you know, it's going to be a decade, especially if you're doing first check investing, right? It, it's going to be a decade, uh, you know, until you see any kind of meaningful output from that. And so you better be darn sure that, you know, to some extent, you view this as your life's work, right? To some extent, this is what you want to be doing for at least the next decade, right? If you're founding a venture fund, right? If you want to just, you know, uh, be an investor or whatever, right? Like, obviously, it's a totally different story, right? But like, if you are founding a venture firm, you and you want to build it into something special, it is at least a decade long journey, probably more like a 20 year journey. And, and, and so I think that is something that I take very seriously and I'm consistently kind of asking myself and calibrating around just like what it means to be on this 5, 10, 15, 20 year journey. So I think that's number one. And then I think number two would be, I think the importance and nuance of the capital raising process, right? You know, I think, I, I think what, what I've learned is that throughout every time we fundraise, I learn something different. Right. Uh, you know, I think in the beginning, right, it was you have to lead with emotion and, and, and you have to just play the volume game. Right. You know, I, I think probably on, on, on fund two, I started to really lean into asking those that I had built credibility with, i.e., you know, other venture firm GPs to start to kind of make intros for me. Right. And lean on their credibility to get intros to more sophisticated investors who could become potential pockets of capital. Right. You know, more recently, I've been spending time getting to know you know, very institutional groups, right, that move, you know, quite slow and, and have, you know, really long diligence processes, but write huge checks. And, and that's a different kind of evolution and process. And so I think just the, simply like the long, long time horizons and nuance with each fundraise as you build and scale a firm, those are probably like kind of the two, the two things that, you know, that I've learned um, uh, quite a bit, although there are many. So, yeah. If there's, um, I'm curious, if there's a single piece of advice your today self would give yourself five and a half years ago when you were starting Contrary, what would it be? Optimize for sexiness with portfolio companies and build deep friendships and relationships with well-respected peers who can vouch for you. I think, I think those, when you're starting out as a manager... I think being in name brand companies and having well-respected VCs that can vouch for you and, and, and give you credibility when it comes to raising capital or winning deals or things like that, I think those are kind of the only things that matter. I think everything else is actually pretty pliable. Uh, you know, whether it's portfolio construction or things like that, right? At the end of the day, if you just kind of put up decent returns and you're an investor in great companies and you have great people that can vouch for you, I think generally the rest can take care of itself, right? I think generally, you know, you can kind of figure it out as you go along. It's interesting that you provide the advice. I know it's counter to what you did, and you didn't really invest in companies that are quote unquote sexy, but rather companies that you felt were on thesis, regardless of where the founder came from, regardless of whether they're a repeat founder, 
and certainly regardless of who else was investing. Part of what I'm curious about is when you do look back, would you have done things differently or do you think your model itself is actually tailored for the approach you took versus investing in brand name type of founders? Yeah. So I, I think for the vast majority of people, they should take the advice that I just gave. I think for us, I would have mixed a little bit more of, of kind of like sexiness brand names in, right? I mean, we would have done a few more, right? I think I would have largely still focused on our strategy because at the end of the day, we're going to have the last laugh, right? In in five years, you know, when we have a 10 to 20x first time fund, right? Like we will have the last laugh, but it's not clear that that necessarily matters, right? Um, you know, because by that point, you'll be on your third or fourth or fifth or whatever fund. I have no regrets about taking the tack that we did on our very first fund. But I do think that we should have, uh, you know, kind of had a few more name brands in there than we did, because I think it would have made it just yeah, much easier. It's the classic case of trying to balance between, you know, the investing side and making sure you're aligning with the thesis, but also understanding the stark reality of what is going to attract capital, which keeps you in the game. Yeah. And it's at the end of the day, right? It's, 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 Humans are human and, you know, we all kind of react towards things that are hypey and, and, you know, name brand and, you know, uh, have good cred and, and, and all of those kinds of things. And I think that was a, a real lesson for me five years ago, right? I mean, I think thankfully it's, you know, not really relevant today, but there were some times in the early days where, you know, I learned that lesson hard. Uh, and, and so hopefully, you know, future managers uh, don't have to have as, uh, as, as painful of a, an experience. So. Yeah, I think everyone sort of learns along the way and everyone goes through some level of pain, on, regardless of who you are. But uh, maybe shifting a, a little bit to your overall career. And of course, you've grown and evolved over the years with the different experiences. Is there a piece of career advice or an experience that you've been through that's really shaped who you are today as a professional? You know, I, I, I think the best advice that I can give, and I generally am not one to believe in giving advice because I think most advice is terrible. But uh, I, I, I think, you know, the advice that I would give is you just have to jump, right? I, I think there are so many people out there who maybe have an idea in the back of their mind or they want to do something or whatever, um, but for, for whatever reason, they they don't, right? Um, whether it's friends or family or, or you know, who, who knows what, it could have a variety of reasons, right? But I think as long as, you know, you have conviction in yourself and, and you have a strong background, right? You know, maybe, you know, worked at company X for a long time, right? Went to a decent school, like all those kinds of things. Like your worst case is that you go get a job. Right. Most likely uh, for the vast majority of people, your worst case is that you get a job. Right. But your best case is totally asymmetric. Right. Your best case is that you you start a world class company or venture firm or whatever it is. Right. Um, and you experience kind of totally outsized success. Right. And, and, and so I think, you know, if I really had to kind of boil it down, like just jumping and going for it, I think is really what matters. Right. Like when I think back to the early days of Contrary, you know, I. I was, I was, I was living at home with my parents while, you know, while, while my, my friends were working at, you know, hedge funds on wall street or, you know, Google or whatever, being a software engineer. Right. And, and I was like at home. Right. Um, but, but I didn't care. Right. Because I knew that I was doing something where at a certain point my path would inflect. Right. And I would basically skyrocket past them. 
And the irony is now five, six years later, the vast majority of them have quit their jobs. The vast majority of them who are working on Wall Street are now in tech, right? Uh, and, and you're kind of light years ahead. I'm glad you pointed that out because I do think careers tend to be nonlinear. And, you know, a lot of these positions at, at corporations, you take more of a linear path. And it's hard, though. I mean, I don't think there's ever a good time to do these, uh, you know, start something, you know, take the risk. But uh, the only way to do it is, you know, sometimes throwing caution in the wind and just jumping in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you, you just literally can't give up. Right. I think if there's like that, that last comment that I make, right, is, you know, you know, sure, jumping is one thing. Right. But I, I've often found and just seen even with our own founders, right, that literally not giving up is a competitive advantage. Right. Uh, you know, like that alone basically distinguishes you from the vast majority of the pack. And I don't know that I've ever seen somebody who has just pushed and pushed and pushed and really grinded where it didn't ultimately work out to some degree. And even if it's a company that didn't work, it's the learnings, it's the springboard to something else. And we and we've seen that time and time again. Yeah. Of course, and the company fails and they go start another one, but they have the respect of their investors. And so they give them money and the second one's a success, right? Exactly. Like you might not always work out. And I think there's a lot of luck in the in the degree of success, right? That a company might experience, right? But but I think if you keep pounding away, you can largely build a, a, a successful company. Totally. Well, Eric, this has been a lot of fun. It's been great to kind of see this from the sidelines into what it's become and really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Samir. This is great. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Locked. We really hope you enjoyed our conversation with Eric. To learn more about him or Contrary, be sure to go to ventureunlocked.substack.com for detailed notes on the show, as well as my ongoing commentary about the world of venture capital. Venture Unlocked is also available on iTunes or Spotify for download. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.